0: CHAPTER FOUR CONTINUED I noticed a sadhu of noble countenance standing just outside the compound of the pundit's house. Evidently, he had overheard this spirited conversation between the self-styled clairvoyant and me, for the stranger called me to his side. I felt a tremendous power flowing from his calm eyes. "'Son, don't listen to that, Ignoramus. In response to your prayer,' the Lord tells me to assure you that your sole path in this life is that of the renunciant. With astonishment as well as gratitude, I smiled happily at this decisive message. Come away from that man, the ignoramus was calling me from the courtyard. My saintly guide raised his hand in blessing and slowly departed. That sadhu is just as crazy as you are. It was the hoary-headed pundit who made this charming observation. He and his son were gazing at me lugubriously. I have heard that he too has left his home in a vague search for God. I turned away. To Ananta I remarked that I would not engage in further discussion with our hosts. My discouraged brother agreed to an immediate departure. We soon entrained for Calcutta. Mr. Detective... How did you discover that I had fled with two companions? I vented my lively curiosity to Ananta during our homeward journey. He smiled mischievously. At your school, I found that Amar had left his classroom and had not returned. I went to his home the next morning and unearthed a marked timetable. Amar's father was just leaving by carriage and was talking to the coachman. My son will not ride with me to his school this morning. He's disappeared, the father moaned. I heard from a brother coachman that your son and two others dressed in European suits boarded the train at Haura Station, the man stated. They made a present of their leather shoes to the cab driver. Thus I had three clues, the timetable, the trio of boys, and the English clothing. I was listening to Ananta's disclosures with mingled mirth and vexation. Our generosity to the coachman had been slightly misplaced. Of course, I rushed to send telegrams to station officials in all the cities that Amar had underlined in the timetable. He had checked Bareilly, so I wired your friend Dwarka there. After inquiries in our Calcutta neighbourhood, I learned that Cousin Jatinda had been absent one night, but had arrived home the following morning in European garb. I sought him out and invited him to dinner. He accepted, quite disarmed by my friendly manner. On the way I led him unsuspectingly to a police station. He was surrounded by several officers whom I had previously selected for their ferocious appearance. Under their formidable gaze, Jatinda agreed to account for his mysterious conduct." I started for the Himalayas in a buoyant spiritual mood, he explained. Inspiration filled me at the prospect of meeting the masters, but as soon as Mukunda said, During our ecstasies in the Himalayan caves, tigers will be spellbound and sit around us like tame pussies, my spirits froze, beads of perspiration formed on my brow, What then, I thought, if the vicious nature of the tigers be not changed through the power of our spiritual trance, shall they treat us with the kindness of house-cats? In my mind's eye, I already saw myself the compulsory inmate of some tiger's stomach, entering there not at once with the whole body, but by installments of its several parts. My anger at Jatinda's vanishment evaporated in laughter. The hilarious explanation on the train was worth all the anguish he had caused me. I must confess to a slight feeling of satisfaction. Jatinda, too, had not escaped an encounter with the police. "'Ananta, you're a born sleuth-hound!' My glance of amusement was not without some exasperation." and I shall tell Jatinda I am glad he was prompted by no mood of treachery, as it appeared, but only by the prudent instincts of self-preservation. At home, in Calcutta, Father touchingly requested me to curb my roving feet until at least the completion of my high school studies. In my absence he had lovingly hatched a plot by arranging for a saintly pundit, Swami K. Balananda, to come regularly to the house. The sage will be your Sanskrit tutor, my parent announced confidently. Father hoped to satisfy my religious yearnings by instruction from a learned philosopher. But the tables were subtly turned. My new teacher, far from offering intellectual aridities, fanned the embers of my God-aspiration. Unknown to Father, Swami Kabbalananda was an exalted disciple of Lahiri Mahashai. The peerless guru had possessed thousands of disciples, silently drawn to him by the irresistibility of his divine magnetism. I learned later that Lahiri Mahashai had often characterized Kabbalananda as Rishi, or illuminated sage. Luxuriant curls framed my tutor's handsome face, His dark eyes were guileless with the transparency of a child's. All the movements of his slight body were marked by a restful deliberation. Ever gentle and loving, he was firmly established in the infinite consciousness. Many of our happy hours together were spent in deep Kriya meditation. Kabbalananda was a noted authority on the ancient Shastras or sacred books. His erudition had earned him the title of Shastri Mahashai, by which he was usually addressed, but my progress in Sanskrit scholarship was unnoteworthy. I sought every opportunity to forsake prosaic grammar and to talk of yoga and Lahiri Mahashay. My tutor obliged me one day by telling me something of his own life with the master. Rarely fortunate... I was able to remain near Lahiri Mahashai for ten years. His Banaras home was my nightly goal of pilgrimage. The Guru was always present in a small front parlour on the first floor. As he sat in lotus posture on a backless wooden seat, his disciples garlanded him in a semicircle. His eyes sparkled and danced with the joy of the Divine. They were ever half-closed peering through the inner telescopic orb into a sphere of eternal bliss. He seldom spoke at length. Occasionally his gaze would focus on a student in need of help. Healing words poured then like an avalanche of light. An indescribable peace blossomed within me at the master's glance. I was permeated with his fragrance, as though from a lotus of infinity.' To be with him, even without exchanging a word for days, was experience which changed my entire being. If any invisible barrier rose in the path of my concentration, I would meditate at the Guru's feet. There, the most tenuous states came easily within my grasp. Such perceptions eluded me in the presence of lesser teachers. The Master was a living temple of God— whose secret doors were open to all disciples through devotion. Lahiri Mahashai was no bookish interpreter of the scriptures. Effortlessly he dipped into the divine library, foam of words and spray of thoughts gushed from the fountain of his omniscience. He had the wondrous clavis that unlocked the profound philosophical science hidden ages ago in the Vedas. If asked to explain the different planes of consciousness mentioned in the ancient texts, he would smilingly assent, I will undergo those states and presently tell you what I perceive. He was thus diametrically unlike the teachers who commit scripture to memory and then give forth unrealized abstractions. Please expound the holy stanzas as the meaning occurs to you the taciturn guru often gave this instruction to a nearby disciple. I will guide your thoughts, that the right interpretation be uttered. In this way, many of Lahiri Mahasya's perceptions came to be recorded with voluminous commentaries by various students. The master never counselled slavish belief. Words are only shells, he said, Win conviction of God's presence through your own joyous contact in meditation. No matter what the disciple's problem, the guru advised Kriya Yoga for its solution. The yogic key will not lose its efficiency when I am no longer present in the body to guide you. This technique cannot be bound, filed and forgotten in the manner of theoretical inspirations, Continue ceaselessly on your path to liberation through Kriya, whose power lies in practice. I myself consider Kriya the most effective device of salvation through self-effort ever to be evolved in man's search for the infinite. Kabbalananda concluded with this earnest testimony, through its use, the omnipotent God hidden in all men became visibly incarnated in the flesh of Lahiri Mahashai and of a number of his disciples. A Christ-like miracle by Lahiri Mahashai took place in Kabalananda's presence. My saintly tutor recounted the story one day, his eyes remote from the Sanskrit texts on the table before us. A blind disciple, Ramu, aroused my active pity, "'should he have no light in his eyes "'when he faithfully served our Master "'in whom the Divine was fully blazing? "'One morning I sought to speak to Ramu, "'but he sat for patient hours "'fanning the Guru with a handmade palm-leaf punkah. "'When the devotee finally left the room, I followed him. "'Ramu, how long have you been blind?' "'From my birth, sir. "'Never have my eyes been blessed with a glimpse of the sun.' Our omnipotent Guru can help you. Please make a supplication. The following day, Ramu diffidently approached Lahiri Mahashai. The disciple felt almost ashamed to ask that physical wealth be added to his spiritual superabundance. Master, the illuminator of the cosmos is in you. I pray you to bring his light into my eyes, that I perceive the sun's lesser glow." Ramu, someone has connived to put me in a difficult position. I have no healing power. Sir, the Infinite One within you can certainly heal. That is indeed different, Ramu. God's limit is nowhere. He who ignites the stars and the cells of flesh with mysterious life effulgence can surely bring the lustre of vision into your eyes. The Master touched Ramu's forehead at the point between the eyebrows. Keep your mind concentrated there and frequently chant the name of the Prophet Rama for seven days. The splendour of the sun shall have a special dawn for you. Lo, in one week it was so. For the first time Ramu beheld the fair face of nature. The omniscient one, had unerringly directed his disciple to repeat the name of Rama, adorned by him above all other saints. Ramu's faith was the devotionally ploughed soil in which the Guru's powerful seed of permanent healing sprouted. Kebalananda was silent for a moment, then paid a further tribute to his Guru. It was evident in all miracles performed by Lahiri Mahasaya that he never allowed the ego principle to consider itself a causative force. By the perfection of his surrender to the prime healing power, the Master enabled it to flow freely through him. The numerous bodies that were spectacularly healed through Lahiri Mahashai eventually had to feed the flames of cremation, but the silent spiritual awakenings he effected, the Christ-like disciples he fashioned, are his imperishable miracles. I never became a Sanskrit scholar. Kebalananda taught me a diviner syntax. Chapter 5 A Perfume Saint Displays His Wonders To everything there is a season, and a time to every purpose under the heaven. I did not have this wisdom of Solomon to comfort me. I gazed searchingly about me on any excursion from home for the face of my destined guru, but my path did not cross his until after the completion of my high school studies. Two years elapsed between my flight with Amar towards the Himalayas and the great day of Sri Yukteswar's arrival into my life. During that interim, I met a number of sages—the Perfume Saint, the Tiger Swami, Nagendra Nath Baduri, Master Mayashai, and the famous Bengali scientist Jagadis Chandrabos. My encounter with the Perfume Saint had two preambles—one harmonious and the other humorous. God is simple, everything else is complex— "'do not seek absolute values in the relative world of nature.' "'These philosophical finalities gently entered my ear "'as I stood silently before a temple image of Kali. "'Turning, I confronted a tall man whose garb, or lack of it, "'revealed him a wandering sadhu. "'You have indeed penetrated the bewilderment of my thoughts,' "'I smiled gratefully.' The confusion of benign and terrible aspects in nature, as symbolized by Kali, has puzzled wiser heads than mine. Few there be who solve a mystery. Good and evil is the challenging riddle which life places sphinx-like before every intelligence. Attempting no solution, most men pay forfeit with their lives. Penalty now even as in the days of Thebes. Here and there, a towering lonely figure never cries defeat. From the mire of duality he plucks the cleveless truth of unity. You speak with conviction, sir. I have long exercised an honest introspection, the exquisitely painful approach to wisdom. Self-scrutiny, relentless observance of one's thoughts, is a stark and shattering experience. It pulverises the stoutest ego, but true self-analysis mathematically operates to produce seers. The way of self-expression, individual acknowledgments, results in egotists, sure of the right to their private interpretation of God and the universe. Truth humbly retires, no doubt, before such arrogant originality. I was enjoying the discussion. Man can understand no eternal verity until he has freed himself from pretensions. The human mind, bared to a centuried slime, is teeming with the repulsive life of countless world delusions. Struggles of the battlefield pale into insignificance here when man first contends with inner enemies. No mortal foes these to be overcome by a harrowing array of might Omnipresent, unresting, pursuing man even in sleep, subtly equipped with miasmic weapons, these soldiers of ignorant lusts seek to slay us all. Thoughtless is the man who buries his ideals, surrendering to the common fate. May he seem other than impotent, wooden, ignominious? Respected sir, have you no sympathy for the bewildered masses? The sage was silent for a moment, then answered obliquely, "'To love both the invisible God, repository of all virtues, and visible man, apparently possessed of none, is often baffling, but ingenuity is equal to the maze. Inner research soon exposes a unity of all human minds.' the stalwart kinship of selfish motive. In one sense at least, the brotherhood of man stands revealed. An aghast humility follows this levelling discovery. It ripens into compassion for one's fellows, blind to the healing potencies of the soul awaiting exploration. The saints of every age, sir, have felt like yourself for the sorrows of the world. Only the shallow man loses responsiveness to the woes of others' lives as he sinks into narrow suffering of his own. The sadhu's austere face was noticeably softened. The one who practices a scalpel, self-dissection, will know an expansion of universal pity. Release is given him from the deafening demands of his ego. The love of God flowers on such soil, the creature finally turns to his creator, if for no other reason than to ask in anguish, Why, Lord, why? By ignoble whips of pain, man is driven at last into the infinite presence, whose beauty alone should lure him. The sage and I were present in the Calcutta Kaligat temple, whither I had gone to view its famed magnificence. With a sweeping gesture, my chance companion dismissed the ornate dignity. Bricks and mortar sing us no audible tune. The heart opens only to the human chant of being. We strolled to the inviting sunshine at the entrance, where throngs of devotees were passing to and fro. You are young, the sage surveyed me thoughtfully. India, too, is young.' the ancient rishis laid down ineradicable patterns of spiritual living. Their hoary dictums suffice for this day and land. Not outmoded, not unsophisticated against the guiles of materialism, the disciplinary precepts mould India still. By millenniums, more than embarrassed scholars care to compute, the sceptic time has validated Vedic worth. Take it for your heritage. As I was reverently bidding farewell to the eloquent Sardu, he revealed a clairvoyant perception. After you leave here today, an unusual experience will come your way. I quitted the temple precincts and wandered along aimlessly. Turning a corner, I ran into an old acquaintance. "'one of those fellows whose conversational powers ignore time and embrace eternity. "'I shall let you go in a very short while,' he promised, "'if you will tell me all that has happened during the years of our separation. "'What a paradox! I must leave you now!' "'But he held me by the hand, forcing out tidbits of information. "'It was like a ravenous wolf,' I thought in amusement. "'The longer I spoke the more hungrily he sniffed for news. Inwardly I petitioned the goddess Kali to devise a graceful means of escape. My companion left me abruptly. I sighed with relief and doubled my pace, dreading any relapse into the garrulous fever. Hearing rapid footsteps behind me, I quickened my speed. I dared not look back, but with a bound the youth rejoined me, jovially clasping my shoulder. I forgot to tell you of Ganda Baba, perfume saint, who is gracing yonder house. He pointed to a dwelling a few yards distant. Do meet him. He's interesting. You may have an unusual experience. Goodbye. And he actually left me. The similarly worded prediction of the sadhu at Kaligat temple flashed through my mind. Intrigued, I entered the house and was ushered into a commodious parlour. A crowd of people were sitting. "'Orient-wise, here and there on a thick orange-coloured carpet, "'an awed whisper reached my ear. "'Behold, Gandababa, on the leopard-skin. "'He can give the natural perfume of any flower to a scentless one, "'or revive a wilted blossom, "'or make a person's skin exude delightful fragrance.' "'I looked directly at the saint.' His quicker gaze rested on mine. He was plump and bearded, with dark skin and large, gleaming eyes. "'Son, I am glad to see you. Say what you want. Would you like some perfume?' "'What for?' I thought his remark rather childish. "'To experience the miraculous way of enjoying perfumes.' "'Harnessing God to make odors. "'What of it? God makes perfumes anyway.' "'Yes,' but he fashions frail bottles of petals for fresh use and discard. Can you materialise flowers? Yes, but usually I produce perfumes, little friend. Then scent factories will go out of business. I will permit them to keep their trade. My own purpose is to demonstrate the power of God.' "'Sir, is it necessary to prove God? "'Isn't he performing miracles in everything, everywhere?' "'Yes, but we too should manifest some of his infinite creative variety.' "'How long did it take you to master your art?' Twelve years.' "'For manufacturing scents by astral means, "'it seems, my honoured saint, "'you've been wasting a dozen years for fragrances "'which you can obtain with a few rupees from a florist's shop.' "'Perfumes fade.' with flowers. Perfumes fade with death. Why should I desire that which pleases the body only? Mr. Philosopher, you please my mind. Now, stretch forth your right hand. He made a gesture of blessing. I was a few feet away from Gandhi Baba. No one else was near enough to contact my body. I extended my hand, which the yogi did not touch. What perfume do you want? Rose, be it so. To my great surprise, the charming fragrance of rose was wafted strongly from the centre of my palm. I smilingly took a large white scentless flower from a nearby vase. Can this odourless blossom be permeated with jasmine? Be it so. A jasmine fragrance instantly shot from the petals. I thanked the wonder worker and seated myself by one of his students. He informed me that Baba, whose proper name was Vishudananda, had learned many astonishing yoga secrets from a master in Tibet. The Tibetan yogi, I was assured, had attained the age of over a thousand years. His disciple, Gandababa, does not always perform his perfume feats in the simple verbal manner you have just witnessed. The student spoke with obvious pride in his master, his procedure differs widely to accord with diversity in temperaments. He is marvellous. Many members of the Calcutta intelligentsia are among his followers. I inwardly resolved not to add myself to their number. A guru too literally marvellous was not to my liking. With polite thanks to Gandhi Baba, I departed. Sauntering home, I reflected on the three varied encounters the day had brought forth. "'My sister, Uma, met me as I entered the door. "'You are getting quite stylish, using perfumes.' "'Without a word, I motioned her to smell my hand. "'What an attractive rose fragrance! "'It is unusually strong!' "'Thinking it was strongly unusual, "'I silently placed the astrally-scented blossom under her nostrils. "'Oh, I love Jasmine!' "'She seized the flower.' A ludicrous bafflement passed over her face as she repeatedly sniffed the odour of jasmine from a type of flower she well knew to be scentless. Her reactions disarmed my suspicion that Gandababa might have induced in me an auto-suggestive state whereby I alone could detect the fragrances. Later I heard from a friend, Alakananda, that the perfume saint had a power which I wish were possessed by the starving millions of the world. I was present with a hundred other guests at Gandababa's home in Burdwan. Alakananda told me. It was a gala occasion. Because the yogi was reputed to have the power of extracting objects out of thin air, I laughingly requested him to materialise some out-of-season tangerines. Immediately the luchis that had been served on all the banana leaf plates became puffed up. Each of the bread envelopes proved to contain a peeled tangerine. I bit into my own with some trepidation, but found it delicious. Years later, I understood by inner realization how Gandha Baba accomplished his materializations. The method, alas, is beyond the reach of the world's hungry hordes. The different sensory stimuli to which man reacts. Tactual, visual, gustatory, auditory, and olfactory are produced by vibratory variations in electrons and protons. The vibrations, in turn, are regulated by prana, life trons, subtle life forces or finer than atomic energies, intelligently charged with the five distinctive sensory idea substances. Ganda Baba attuning himself with the pranic force by certain yoga practices, was able to guide the trons to rearrange their vibratory structure and to objectify the desired result. His perfume, fruit and other miracles were actual materializations of mundane vibrations and were not inner sensations, hypnotically produced. Hypnotism has been used by physicians in minor operations as a sort of psychical chloroform for persons who might be endangered by an anaesthetic, but a hypnotic state is harmful to those often subjected to it. A negative psychological effect ensues that in time deranges the brain cells. Hypnotism is trespass into the territory of another's consciousness. Its temporary phenomena have nothing in common with the miracles performed by men of divine realisation. Awake in God, true saints effect changes in this dream world by means of a will harmoniously attuned to the creative cosmic dreamer. Wonder workings, such as those shown by the perfume saint, are spectacular but spiritually useless. Having little purpose beyond entertainment, they are digressions from a serious search for God. Ostentatious display of unusual powers is decried by masters. The Persian mystic Abu Said once laughed at certain fakirs, Muslim ascetics, who were proud of their miraculous powers over water, air and space. A frog is also at home in the water, Abu Said pointed out in gentle scorn. The crow and the vulture easily fly in the air. The devil is simultaneously present in the East and in the West. A true man is he who dwells in righteousness among his fellow men, who may buy and sell, yet is never for a single instant forgetful of God. On another occasion, the great Persian teacher gave his views on the religious life thus. To lay aside what you have in your head, selfish desires and ambitions. To bestow freely what you have in your hand and never to flinch from the blows of adversity. Neither the impartial sage at Kaligat Temple, nor the Tibetan-trained yogi had satisfied my yearnings for a guru. My heart needed no tutor for its recognitions, and cried a spontaneous bravo, the more resoundingly, because it was unoften summoned from silence. When I finally met my master, by sublimity of example alone he taught me the measure of a true man chapter 6 the tiger swami i have discovered the tiger swami's address let us visit him tomorrow this welcome suggestion came from chandi one of my high school friends i was eager to meet the saint who in his pre-monastic life had caught and fought tigers with his naked hands. A boyish enthusiasm over such remarkable feats was strong within me. The next day dawned wintry cold, but Chandi and I sallied forth gaily. After much vain hunting in Bawainipur, outside Calcutta, we arrived at the right house. The door held two iron rings, which I sounded piercingly. Notwithstanding the clamour, A servant approached with a leisurely gait. His ironical smile implied that noisy visitors were powerless to disturb the calmness of a saint's home. Feeling the silent rebuke, my companion and I were thankful to be invited into the parlour. Our long wait there beset us with misgivings. India's unwritten law for the truth-seeker is patience. A master may purposely make a test of one's eagerness to meet him. This psychological ruse is freely employed in the West by doctors and dentists. Finally, summoned by the servant, Chandi and I entered a sleeping apartment. The famous Sohong Swami was seated on his bed. The sight of his tremendous body affected us strangely. With bulging eyes, we stood speechless. We'd never before seen such a chest or such football-like biceps, On an immense neck, the Swami's fierce yet calm face was adorned with flowing locks, beard and moustache. A hint of dove-like and tiger-like qualities shone in his dark eyes. He was unclothed, save for a tiger-skin about his muscular waist. Finding our voices, my friend and I greeted the monk, expressing our admiration for his prowess in the extraordinary feline arena. Will you not tell us, please, how it is possible to subdue with bare fists the most ferocious of jungle beasts, the Royal Bengals? My sons, it is nothing to me to fight tigers. I could do it today, if necessary. He gave a childlike laugh. You look upon tigers as tigers. I know them as pussycats. Swamiji, I think I could impress my subconsciousness "'with the thought that the tigers are pussycats, "'but could I make tigers believe it? "'Of course, strength is also necessary. "'One may not expect victory from a baby "'who imagines a tiger to be a house cat. "'Powerful hands are my sufficient weapon.' "'He asked us to follow him to the patio, "'where he struck the edge of a wall. "'A brick crashed to the floor. "'The sky peered boldly through the gape, the lost tooth-space in the wall. I staggered in astonishment. He who can remove a mortared brick from a solid wall with one blow, I thought, must surely be able to displace the teeth of tigers. A number of men have physical power such as mine, but still lack in cool confidence. Those who are bodily but not mentally stalwart may find themselves fainting at the mere sight of a wild beast bounding freely in the jungle." The tiger, in its natural ferocity and habitat, is vastly different from the opium-fed circus animal. Many a man with Herculean strength has nonetheless been terrorised into abject helplessness before the onslaught of a royal Bengal. Thus the tiger has converted the man, in his own mind, to a state as fearful as the pussycats. It is possible for a man, owning a fairly strong body and an immensely strong determination, to turn the tables on the tiger and force it to a conviction of pussycat defencelessness. How often have I done just that? I was quite willing to believe that the titan before me was able to perform the tiger-pussycat metamorphosis. He seemed to be in a didactic mood. Chandy and I listened respectfully. Mind is the wielder of muscles.' The force of a hammer blow depends on the energy applied. The power, expressed by a man's bodily instrument, depends on his aggressive will and courage. The body is literally manufactured and sustained by mind. Through pressure of instincts from past lives, strengths or weaknesses percolate gradually into human consciousness. They express as habits, which in turn manifest as a desirable or an undesirable body. Outward frailty has a mental origin. In a vicious circle, the habit-bound body thwarts the mind. If the master allows himself to be commanded by a servant, the latter becomes autocratic. The mind is similarly enslaved by submitting to bodily dictation. At our entreaty, the impressive Swami consented to tell us something of his own life. My earliest ambition was to fight tigers. My will was mighty, but my body was feeble. An ejaculation of surprise broke from me. It appeared incredible that this man now, with Atlantean shoulders fit to bear, could ever have known weakness. It was by indomitable persistency in thoughts of health and strength that I overcame my handicap. I have every reason to extol the compelling mental vigour which I found to be the real subduer, "'of royal Bengals. "'Do you think, revered Swami, "'that I could ever fight tigers? "'This was the first time and the last "'that the bizarre ambition ever visited my mind. "'Yes,' he was smiling, "'but there are many kinds of tigers, "'some roam in jungles of human desires. "'No spiritual benefit accrues by knocking beasts unconscious. "'Rather be victor over the inner prowlers may we hear sir how you changed from a tamer of wild tigers to a tamer of wild passions the tiger swami fell into silence remoteness came into his gaze summoning visions of bygone years i discerned his slight mental struggle to decide whether to grant my request finally he smiled in acquiescence when my fame reached a zenith it brought the intoxication of pride. I decided not only to fight tigers, but to display them in various tricks. My ambition was to force savage beasts to behave like domesticated ones. I began to perform my feats publicly, with gratifying success. One evening my father entered my room, in pensive mood. Son, I have words of warning. I would save you from coming ills, produced by the grinding wheels of cause and effect. Are you a fatalist, father? Should superstition be allowed to discolour the powerful waters of my activities? I am no fatalist, son. But I believe in the just law of retribution, as taught in the Holy Scriptures. There is resentment against you in the jungle family. Sometime it may act to your cost. Father, you astonish me. "'You well know what tigers are, beautiful but merciless. "'Who knows, my blows may inject some slight sanity of consideration into their thick heads. "'I am headmaster in a forest finishing school to teach them gentler manners. "'Please, father, think of me as tiger-tamer and never as tiger-killer. "'How could my good actions bring ill upon me? "'I beg you not to impose any command that I change my way of life.' Chandi and I were all attention, understanding the past dilemma. In India, a child does not lightly disobey his parents' wishes. The tiger swami went on. In stoic silence, father listened to my explanation. He followed it with a disclosure which he uttered gravely. Son, you compel me to relate an ominous prediction from the lips of a saint. He approached me yesterday as I sat on the veranda in my daily meditation. Dear friend... I come with a message for your belligerent son. Let him cease his savage activities. Otherwise, his next tiger encounter shall result in his severe wounds, followed by six months of deathly sickness. He shall then forsake his former ways and become a monk. This tale did not impress me. I considered that father had been the credulous victim of a deluded fanatic. The tiger swami made this confession "'with an impatient gesture, as though at some stupidity. "'Grimly silent for a long time, he seemed oblivious of our presence. "'When he took up the dangling thread of his narrative, "'it was suddenly, with subdued voice, not long after father's warning, "'I visited the capital city of Kuch "'The picturesque territory was new to me, and I expected a restful change. "'As usual, everywhere—' "'A curious crowd followed me on the streets. "'I would catch bits of whispered comment. "'This is the man who fights wild tigers. "'Has he legs or tree trunks? "'Look at his face! "'He must be an incarnation of the King of Tigers himself. "'You know how village urchins function "'like final editions of a newspaper? "'With what speed do the even later speech bulletins "'of the women circulate from house to house?' Within a few hours, the whole city was in a state of excitement over my presence. I was relaxing quietly in the evening when I heard the hoofbeats of galloping horses. They stopped in front of my dwelling place. In came a number of tall, turbaned policemen. I was taken aback. All things are possible unto these creatures of human law, I thought. I wonder if they are going to take me to task about matters utterly unknown to me. But the officers bowed. "'with unwanted courtesy. honoured sir, we are sent to welcome you "'on behalf of the Prince of Kuchbihar. "'He is pleased to invite you to his palace tomorrow morning.' "'I speculated a while on the prospect. "'For some obscure reason I felt a sharp regret "'at this interruption in my quiet trip. "'But the suppliant manner of the policeman moved me. "'I agreed to go. "'I was bewildered.' THE NEXT DAY TO BE OBSEQUIOUSLY ESCORTED FROM MY DOOR INTO A MAGNIFICENT COACH DRAWN BY FOUR HORSES. A SERVANT HELD AN ORNATE UMBRELLA TO PROTECT ME FROM THE SCORCHING SUNLIGHT. I ENJOYED THE PLEASANT RIDE THROUGH THE CITY AND its WOODLAND OUTSKIRTS. THE ROYAL SCION HIMSELF WAS AT THE PALACE DOOR TO WELCOME ME. HE PROFFERED HIS OWN GOLD-BROCADED SEAT, SMILINGLY PLACING HIMSELF IN A CHAIR OF SIMPLER DESIGN. "'All this politeness is certainly going to cost me something,' "'I thought, in mounting astonishment. "'The prince's motive emerged after a few casual remarks. "'My city is filled with the rumour "'that you can fight wild tigers "'with nothing more than your naked hands. "'Is it a fact?' "'It is, quite true. "'I can scarcely believe it. "'You are a Calcutta Bengali, "'nurtured on the white rice of city folk. "'Be frank, please.' "'Have you not been fighting only spineless, opium-fed animals?' "'His voice was loud and sarcastic, his speech tinged with provincial accent. "'I vouchsafed no reply to his insulting question. "'I challenge you to fight my newly-caught tiger, Raja Begum. "'If you can, successfully resist him, bind him with a chain, "'and depart his cage in a conscious state.' "'you shall have this royal Bengal. "'Several thousand rupees and many other gifts "'shall also be bestowed. "'If you refuse to meet him in combat, "'I shall blazon your name throughout the state as an impostor. "'His insolent words struck me like a volley of bullets. "'I shot an angry acceptance. "'Half risen from the chair in his excitement, "'the prince sank back with a sadistic smile. "'I was reminded of the Roman Empress. "'who delight in setting Christians in bestial arenas. "'He said, "'The match will be set for a week hence. "'I regret that I cannot give you permission to view the tiger in advance. "'Whether the prince feared I might seek to hypnotise the beast "'or secretly feed him opium, I know not. "'I left the palace, noting with amusement "'that the royal umbrella and panoplied coach were now missing.' THE FOLLOWING WEEK I METHODICALLY PREPARED MY MIND AND BODY FOR THE COMING ORDEAL. THROUGH MY SERVANT I LEARNED OF FANTASTIC TALES. THE SAINT'S DIREFUL PREDICTION TO MY FATHER HAD SOMEHOW GOT ABROAD, ENLARGING AS IT RAN. MANY SIMPLE VILLAGERS BELIEVED THAT AN EVIL SPIRIT, CURSED BY THE GODS, HAD REINCARNATED AS A TIGER, WHICH TOOK VARIOUS DEMONIC FORMS AT NIGHT, BUT REMAINED A STRIPED ANIMAL DURING THE DAY. This demon tiger was supposed to be the one sent to humble me. Another imaginative version was that animal prayers to tiger heaven had achieved a response in the shape of Raja Begum. He was to be the instrument to punish me, the audacious biped so insulting to the entire tiger species. A furless, fangless man daring to challenge a claw-armed, sturdy-limbed tiger. The force of concentrated venom of all humiliated tigers "'the villagers declared, "'had gathered momentum sufficient to operate hidden laws "'and bring about the fall of the proud tiger-tamer. "'My servant further appraised me "'that the prince was in his element "'as manager of the bout between man and beast. "'He had supervised the erection of a storm-proof pavilion "'designed to accommodate thousands. "'Its centre held Raja Bigum "'in an enormous iron cage,' "'surrounded by an outer safety-room. "'The captive emitted a ceaseless series of blood-curdling roars. "'He was fed sparingly to kindle a wrathful appetite. "'Perhaps the prince expected me to be the meal of reward. "'Crowds from the city and suburbs "'bought tickets eagerly in response to the beat of drums "'announcing the unique contest. "'The day of battle saw hundreds turned away for lack of seats.' "'Many men broke through the tent openings "'or crowded any space below the galleries. "'As the Tiger Swami story approached a climax, "'my excitement mounted with it. "'Chandi was also raptly mute. "'Amidst piercing sound explosions from Raja Bigum "'and the hubbub of the terrified crowd, "'I quietly made my appearance. "'Scantily clad around the waist, "'I was otherwise unprotected by clothing.' I opened the bolt on the door of the safety room and calmly locked it behind me. The tiger sensed blood. Leaping with a thunderous crash on the bars, he sent forth a ferocious welcome. The audience was hushed with a pitiful fear. I seemed a meek lamb before the raging beast. In a trice I was within the cage, but as I slammed the door, Raja Begum was headlong upon me. My right hand was desperately torn. Human blood, the greatest treat a Tiger can know, fell in appalling streams. The prophecy of the saint seemed about to be fulfilled. I rallied instantly from the shock of the first serious injury I had ever received. Banishing the sight of my gory fingers by thrusting them beneath my waistcloth, I swung my left arm in a bone-cracking blow. The beast reeled back, swirled around the rear of the cage, and sprang forward convulsively. My famous fistic punishment rained on his head, but Raja Begum's taste of blood had acted like the maddening first sip of wine to a dipsomaniac long deprived. Punctuated by deafening roars, the brute's assaults grew in fury. My inadequate defence of only one hand. "'left me vulnerable before claws and fangs, "'but I dealt out dazing retribution. "'Mutually ensanguined, we struggled as to the death. "'The cage was pandemonium, as blood splashed in all directions, "'and blasts of pain and lethal lust came from the bestial throat. "'Shoot him! Kill the tiger!' shrieks arose from the audience. "'So fast did man and beast move that a guard's bullet went amiss.' I mustered all my will-force, bellowed fiercely, and landed a final concussive blow. The tiger collapsed and lay quietly. Like a pussycat, I interjected. The swami laughed in hearty appreciation, then continued the engrossing tale. Raja Begum was vanquished at last. His royal pride was further humbled. With my lacerated hands... I audaciously forced open his jaws. For a dramatic moment, I held my head within the yawning death trap. I looked around for a chain. Pulling one from a pile on the floor, I bound the tiger by his neck to the cage bars. In triumph, I moved toward the door. But that fiend incarnate, Raja Begum, had stamina worthy of his supposed demoniac origin. With an incredible lunge, he snapped the chain and leapt on my back. My shoulder fast in his jaws, I fell violently. But in a trice, I had him pinned beneath me. Under merciless blows, the treacherous animal sank into semi-consciousness. This time I secured him more carefully. Slowly I left the cage. I found myself in a new uproar, this time one of delight the crowd's cheer broke as though from a single gigantic throat. Disastrously mauled, I had yet fulfilled the three conditions of the fight, stunning the tiger, binding him with a chain, and leaving him without requiring assistance for myself. In addition, I had so drastically injured and frightened the aggressive beast that he had been content to overlook the opportune prize of my head in his mouth. After my wounds had been treated, I was honoured and garlanded. Many gold pieces were showered at my feet. The whole city entered a holiday period. Endless discussions were heard on all sides about my victory over one of the largest and most savage tigers ever seen. Raja Begum was presented to me as promised, but I felt no elation. A spiritual change had entered my heart. It seemed that, with my final exit from the cage... I had also closed the door on my worldly ambitions. A woeful period followed. For six months I lay near death from blood poisoning. As soon as I was well enough to leave Kuch Bihar, I returned to my native town. I know now that my teacher is the holy man who gave the wise warning. I humbly made this confession to my father. Oh, if only I could find him! My longing was sincere... "'for one day the saint arrived, unheralded. "'Enough of tiger-taming,' he spoke with calm assurance. "'Come with me. "'I will teach you to subdue the beasts of ignorance "'roaming in jungles of the human mind. "'You are used to an audience. "'Let it be a galaxy of angels, "'entertained by your thrilling mastery of yoga. "'I was initiated into the spiritual path by my saintly guru.' He opened my soul doors, rusty and resistant with long disuse. Hand in hand, we soon set out for my training in the Himalayas. Chandy and I bowed at the Swami's feet, grateful for his outline of a cyclonic life. My friend and I felt amply repaid for the long probationary wait in the cold parlour. Chapter 7 THE LEVITATING SAINT I saw a yogi remain in the air several feet above the ground last night at a group meeting. My friend, Upendra Mohan Mahonchaudhuri, spoke impressively. I gave him an enthusiastic smile. Perhaps I can guess his name. Was it Baudri Mahashay of Upper Circular Road? Upendra nodded, a little crestfallen, not to be a news-bearer. My inquisitiveness about saints was well known to my friends. They delighted in setting me on a fresh track. The yogi lives so close to my home that I often visit him. My words brought keen interest to Upendra's face, and I made further confidence. I have seen him in remarkable feats. He has expertly mastered the various pranayamas mentioned in the ancient eightfold yoga outlined by Patanjali, once Baduri Mahashai performed the Bastrika Pranayama before me with such amazing force that it seemed an actual storm had arisen in the room. Then he extinguished the thundering breath and remained motionless in a high state of super-consciousness. The aura of peace after the storm was vivid beyond forgetting. I have heard that the saint never leaves his home. Upendra's tone was a trifle incredulous. Indeed, it is true. He has lived indoors for the past twenty years. He slightly relaxes his self-imposed rule at the times of our holy festivals, when he goes as far as his front sidewalk. The beggars gather there because Saint Baduri is known for his tender heart. How does he remain in the air, defying the law of gravitation? A yogi's body loses its grossness, after use of certain pranayamas. Then it will levitate or hop about like a leaping frog. Even saints, who do not practice a formal yoga, have been known to levitate during a state of intense devotion to God. I would like to know more of this, sage. Do you attend his evening meetings? Upendra's eyes were sparkling with curiosity. Yes, I go often. I am vastly entertained by the wit in his wisdom." Occasionally, my prolonged laughter mars the solemnity of his gatherings. The saint is not displeased, but his disciples look daggers. On my way home from school that afternoon, I passed Baduri Mahashya's cloister and decided on a visit. The yogi was inaccessible to the general public. A lone disciple occupying the ground floor guarded his master's privacy. The student was something of a martinet. He now inquired formally if I had an engagement. His guru put in an appearance just in time to save me from summary ejection. Let Mukunda come when he will, the sage's eyes twinkled. My rule of seclusion is not for my own comfort, but for that of others. Worldly people do not like the candour that shatters their delusions. Saints are not only rare but disconcerting. Even in scripture they are often found embarrassing. I followed Baduri Mahashaya to his austere quarters on the top floor, from which he seldom stirred. Masters often ignore the panorama of the world's ado, out of focus till centred in the ages. The contemporaries of a sage are not only those of the narrow present. Maharishi, you are the first yogi I have known who always stays indoors. God plants his saints, sometimes in unexpected soil lest we think we may reduce him to a rule. The sage locked his vibrant body in the lotus posture. In his seventies he displayed no unpleasing signs of age or sedentary life. Stalwart and straight, he was ideal in every respect. His face was that of a rishi, as described in the ancient texts. Noble-headed, abundantly bearded, he always sat firmly upright, his quiet eyes fixed on omnipresence. The saint and I entered the meditative state. After an hour, his gentle voice roused me. You go often into the silence, but have you developed Anubhava, actual perception of God? He was reminding me to love God more than meditation. Do not mistake the technique for the goal. He offered me some mangoes. With the good-humoured wit that I found so delightful in his grave nature, he remarked, people in general are more fond of jala-yoga, union with food, than of dhyana-yoga, union with God. His yogic pun affected me uproariously. What a laugh you have! An affectionate gleam came into his gaze. His own face was always serious, yet subtly touched with an ecstatic smile. His large lotus eyes held a hidden divine laughter. Those letters come from far-off America, the sage indicated, several thick envelopes on a table. I correspond with a few societies there whose members are interested in yoga. They are discovering India anew, with a better sense of direction than Columbus. <laughs> I am glad to help them, and knowledge of yoga, like the daylight, is free to all who will receive it. What Rishis perceive as essential for human salvation need not be diluted for the West. Alike in soul, though diverse in outer experience, neither West nor East will flourish if some form of disciplinary yoga be not practised. The saint held me with his tranquil eyes. I did not realise that his speech was a veiled prophetic guidance. It is only now, as I write these words, that I understand the full meaning in the casual intimations he often gave me that someday I would carry India's teachings to America. Maharishi, I wish you would write a book on yoga for the benefit of the world. I am training disciples. They and their line of students will serve as living volumes, proof against the natural disintegrations of time and the unnatural interpretations of the critics. I remained alone with the yogi until his disciples arrived in the evening. Badari Mahasha began one of his inimitable discourses. Like a peaceful flood, he swept away the mental debris of his listeners, floating them godward. His striking parables were expressed in a flawless Bengali. This evening, Bhardari expounded various philosophical points connected with the life of Mirabai, a medieval Rajputani princess who had abandoned her court life to seek the company of saints. One great sannyasi, Sanatana Goswami, refused to receive her because she was a woman. Her reply brought him humbly to her feet. Tell the Master, she had said, that I did not know there was any male in the universe save God. Are we all not females before him? A scriptural conception of the Lord as the only positive creative principle, his creation being naught, but a passive Maya. Mirabai composed many ecstatic songs, which are still treasured in India. I translate one of them here. If by bathing daily God could be realised, sooner would I be a whale in the deep. If by eating roots and fruits he could be known, gladly would I choose the form of a goat. If the counting of rosaries uncovered him, I would say my prayers on mammoth beads. If buying before stone images unveiled him, a flinty mountain I would humbly worship. If by drinking milk the Lord could be imbibed, many calves and children would know him. If abandoning one's wife could summon God, would not thousands be eunuchs? Mirabai knows that to find the Divine One, the only indispensable is love. Several students put rupees in baduri slippers which lay by his side as he sat in yoga posture. This respectful offering, customary in India, indicates that the disciple places his material goods at the guru's feet. Grateful friends are only the lord in disguise, looking after his own. Master, you are wonderful! A student, taking his leave, gazed ardently at the patriarchal sage, You have renounced riches and comforts to seek God and teach us wisdom. It was well known that Badri Mahasha had forsaken great family wealth in his early childhood when, single-mindedly, he had entered the yogic path. You are reversing the case, the saint's face held a mild rebuke. I have left a few paltry rupees, a few petty pleasures, for a cosmic empire of endless bliss— How then have I denied myself anything? I know the joy of sharing the treasure. Is that a sacrifice? The short-sighted, worldly folk are verily the real renunciants. They relinquish an unparalleled divine possession for a poor handful of earthly toys. I chuckled over this paradoxical view of renunciation. One that puts the cap of Croesus on any saintly beggar whilst transforming all proud millionaires into unconscious martyrs. The divine order arranges our future more wisely than any insurance company. The master's concluding words were the realized creed of his faith. The world is full of uneasy believers in an outward security. Their bitter thoughts are like scars on their foreheads. The one who gave us air and milk from our first breath knows how to provide day by day for his devotees. I continued my after-school pilgrimages to the saint's door. With silent zeal he aided me to attain Anubhava. One day he moved to Ram Mohan Roy Road, away from the neighbourhood of my home. His loving disciples had built him a new hermitage, known as Nagendrama. Although it throws me ahead of my story by a number of years, I will recount here the last words given to me by Baduri Mahashay. Shortly before I embarked for the West, I sought him out and humbly knelt for his farewell blessing. Son, go to America. Take the dignity of hoary India for your shield. Victory is written on your brow. The noble, distant people will well receive you. Chapter 8 India's Great Scientist J. C. Bose Jagadish Chandra Bose's wireless inventions antedated those of Marconi. Overhearing this provocative remark, I walked closer to a sidewalk group of professors engaged in scientific discussion. "'If my motive in joining them was racial pride, I regret it. "'I cannot deny my keen interest in evidence "'that India can play a leading part in physics "'and not metaphysics alone.' "'What do you mean, sir?' "'The professor obligingly explained. "'Bos was the first one to invent a wireless coherer "'and an instrument for indicating the refraction of electric waves. "'But the Indian scientist did not exploit his inventions commercially.' He soon turned his attention from the inorganic to the organic world. His revolutionary discoveries as a plant physiologist are outpacing even his radical achievements as a physicist. I politely thanked my mentor. He added, The great scientist is one of my brother professors at Presidency College. I paid a visit the next day to the sage at his home, which was close to mine. I had long admired him from a respectful distance. The grave and retiring botanist greeted me graciously. He was a handsome, robust man in his fifties, with thick hair, a broad forehead, and the abstracted eyes of a dreamer. The precision in his tones revealed the lifelong scientific habit. I have recently returned from an expedition to scientific societies of the West. Their members exhibited intense interest in delicate instruments of my invention which demonstrate the indivisible unity of all life. The Bose-Crescograph has the enormousness of ten million magnifications. The microscope enlarges only a few thousand times, yet it brought vital impetus to biological science. The Crescograph opens incalculable vistas. You have done much, sir, to hasten the embrace of East and West with the impersonal arms of science. I was educated at Cambridge. How admirable is the Western method of submitting all theory to scrupulous experimental verification. That empirical procedure has gone hand in hand with the gift for introspection that is my Eastern heritage. Together they have enabled me to sunder the silences of natural realms long uncommunicative. The tell-tale charts of my Kreskograph are evidence for the most sceptical that plants have a sensitive nervous system, and a varied emotional life. Love, hate, joy, fear, pleasure, pain, excitability, stupor, and countless other appropriate responses to stimuli are as universal in plants as in animals. The unique throb of life in all creation could seem only poetic imagery before your advent, professor. A saint I once knew would never pluck flowers. Shall I rob the rosebush... Of its pride in beauty shall I affront its dignity by my rude divestment? His sympathetic words are verified literally to your discoveries. The poet is intimate with truth, while the scientist approaches awkwardly. Come some day to my laboratory and see the unequivocal testimony of the crescograph. Gratefully I accepted the invitation and took my departure. I heard later that the botanist had left Presidency College and was planning a research centre in Calcutta. When the Bose Institute was opened, I attended the dedicatory services. Enthusiastic hundreds strolled over the premises. I was charmed with the artistry and spiritual symbolism of the new home of science. Its front gate is a century relic from a distant shrine. Behind a lotus pool, a sculptured female figure with a torch conveys the Indian respect for woman as the immortal light-bearer. A small temple in a garden is consecrated to the Numenon, beyond phenomena. Thought of the divine incorporeity is suggested by the absence of any altar image. Bose's speech on this great occasion might have issued from the lips of one of the inspired ancient rishis. I dedicate today this institute as not merely a laboratory, but a temple his reverent solemnity stole like an unseen cloak over the crowded auditorium. In the pursuit of my investigations, I was unconsciously led into the border region of physics and physiology. To my amazement, I found boundary lines vanishing and points of contact emerging between the realms of the living and the non-living. Inorganic matter was perceived as anything but inert. It was a thrill under the action of multitudinous forces. A universal reaction seemed to bring metal, plant and animal under a common law. They all exhibited essentially the same phenomena of fatigue and depression, with possibilities of recovery and of exaltation, as well as the permanent unresponsiveness associated with death. Filled with awe... At this stupendous generalisation, it was with great hope that I announced my results before the Royal Society, results demonstrated by experiments. But the physiologists present advised me to confine myself to investigations in physics, in which my success had been assured, rather than to encroach on their preserves. I had unwittingly strayed into the domain of an unfamiliar caste system, and had offended its etiquette. An unconscious theological bias was also present, which confounds ignorance with faith. It is often forgotten that he who has surrounded us with this ever-evolving mystery of creation has also implanted in us the desire to question and understand. Through many years of miscomprehension from others, I came to know that the life of a devotee of science is inevitably filled with unending struggle, It is for him to cast his life as an ardent offering, regarding gain and loss, success and failure, as one. In time, the leading scientific societies of the world accepted my theories and results and recognised the importance of the Indian contribution to science. Can anything small or circumscribed ever satisfy the mind of India? By a continuous living tradition and the vital power of rejuvenescence, this land has readjusted itself through unnumbered transformations. Indians have always arisen who, discarding the immediate and absorbing prize of the hour, have sought for the realisation of the highest ideals in life, not through passive renunciation, but through active struggle. The weakling, who has refused the conflict acquiring nothing, has had nothing to renounce. He alone, who has striven and won, can enrich the world by bestowing the fruits of his victorious experience. End of Disc 2 Chapter 8 continues on Disc 3